Our sermon text for this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, and we will be reading verses 15 through 21. Luke 2, 15 through 21. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. At this point, we'd like to call the children forward. I want to talk to you about something this morning, a little scary, something called a curse. A curse is sort of like a promise, only it's a promise of something bad, not good. When God created our first parents and placed them in the Garden of Eden, they were given all the trees of the garden that they could eat from. There was also a tree called the tree of life, which was a picture of God's promise of everlasting life if they obeyed him. They were also told not to eat the fruit of a certain tree or else they would die. That tree was a picture of a promise, in this case a curse, that they would die both in their bodies and in their souls if they ate that fruit. Well, I'm sure you know the story how the devil in the form of a snake talked to Eve and told her how God was just trying to trick them. The evil devil said that God was just afraid of how great Adam and Eve would become if they ate the fruit of that tree. After a while of listening to the lies of the devil, Eve believed the devil, which means she didn't believe in God's word. And she and Adam ate that fruit that they were not supposed to eat. Then God called them to face him and answer for what they had done. God kept his promise that Adam and Eve would die, but he also made a way for their souls not to die and perish in hell forever. He sacrificed a lamb and then covered them with the skins of the lamb as clothes. And this was a picture of what Jesus would do for his people. He would die for them, and the perfect life that he lived, the perfect life of obedience to God, God would look on that as being their perfect life of obedience to him. But God also kept his promise of the curse upon the devil for being the deceiver and liar that tempted our first parents to sin. And because the devil used a snake in his tricks and lies, God cursed the snake. And I suppose that's why all over the world, people have a natural fear and dislike of snakes. Many hundreds of years later, when the people of Israel were traveling across the desert, going to the land that God had promised to them, they began again to complain and act as if God were not with them, as if God were not caring for them, as if God were not feeding them, as if God were a liar. So God sent snakes into the camp of Israel. They called them fiery snakes because their bite burned so badly. The poison of these snakes was a picture of the poison of sin 
Because Adam and Eve sinned, all people die. Sin is the cause of death. Now when this happened, the people felt sorry for not believing God's promise and they repented. But do you think that God took the snakes away immediately? No, he did not. He did something that would make the people better. He told Moses to make a big metal snake and place it on top of a pole in the middle of a camp of Israel. And that if anyone was bitten by the snake, all they had to do was look up at that metal snake and they would not die. Now, do you see how that would make the people better? It would make them better because it would mean that the only way that they could get well and not die is by believing God's promise and trusting in Him. Many more hundred years later, Jesus said that He would be lifted up, just like that metal snake was lifted up. And Jesus meant His death on the cross. And in the same way, all those who look to Jesus, that means those who believe on Him, they will be saved from the death of sin. Now, why would God use a metal snake to be a picture of the remedy from death? Well, that's because the snake was the most cursed of all the animals. And in the same way, Jesus carried for us when he died the curse of God against all our sins. Now, do you know what the name Jesus means? It means God saves. When Jesus was named, as we just read in our verse from Luke 2, God was promising to save his people from the curse of God against sin. And he does this by giving us the faith to believe in Jesus and to trust in his perfect life to make us right with God. We're going to pray and then you can return to your seats. Bow your heads. O Heavenly Father, thy word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, and enlightening the eyes of the blind the power of God unto everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and Thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere Thy Word. We entreat Thee that Thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with Thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing Thy Word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Although we're only a couple of days after Christmas, we're going to be looking at the next major event in the life of Christ after his birth, which is his circumcision, of which we've just read. The way we'll look at the subject, as our outline shows, is as follows. First, Christ's circumcision ratified God's covenant. Secondly, Christ's circumcision identified him with his people. And thirdly, Christ's circumcision fulfilled the significance of the right. So firstly, Christ's circumcision ratified God's covenant. Our Old Testament reading tells us the story of God reaffirming his covenant with Abraham. The covenant itself was established with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Several times we have noted how God engaged himself to fulfill the covenant. This was demonstrated by God passing through the midst of the severed 
animal carcasses, while Abraham was knocked out cold. In this event, God was proclaiming that the covenant is completely his. He makes it, he guards its integrity, and he fulfills it. Abraham could never imagine in his wildest dreams that his obedience to God is what safeguarded the covenant. Because when God ratified it with him, Abraham was unconscious. Again, what this event tells us is that God was taking it upon himself to guarantee the fulfillment of his covenant. He was taking the responsibility for the faithfulness of his people. Right here at the beginning of the Old Testament, the Reformation doctrine of imputed righteousness is clearly on display. The parties to the covenant were both invoking a curse on their heads that was essentially this. May I be cut off like these animals have been cut off if I break this covenant. But when God established the covenant, He didn't let Abraham share in the duty of preserving the covenant. Rather, <coughs> excuse me, God took Abraham's responsibility upon Himself. This is what Paul is referring to in Galatians chapter 3, verse 17, when he speaks of the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ. The covenant of grace was actually a covenant between God and Christ as the representative of his people. And God rendered Abraham unconscious when he established this covenant in order to show that the covenant of grace predated Abraham, but that Abraham and his children, according to the promise, were accounted for or covered by the provisions of this covenant. So in Genesis chapter 17, God is not establishing the covenant. That was done in Genesis 15. Here, God is reaffirming it. And He seals this covenant with His people by giving them the sign of circumcision. By way of this rite, the head of every covenant household would bear in his body the mark of God's sovereign promise. When God said to Abraham, I will be God to thee and to thy offspring after thee, he was promising the salvation of the church. Every generation of believers can cling to this promise in faith. By way of the sacrament of circumcision, God was placing the seal of his covenant of grace upon all the heirs of the promise. And this is where we find the significance of Christ's circumcision. As the covenant head of His church, Christ came to bear for His people the burden of God's curse for the broken covenant. Christ came to literally be cut off, to bear the responsibility for the covenant unfaithfulness of God's elect. What was signified when God passed through the severed carcasses, which was again sealed by circumcision, was fulfilled by Christ at His death. But at His circumcision, Christ was accepting His role as the substitute for God's people. By being submitted to this sacrament as a helpless baby, Jesus was showing the two most notable aspects of God's covenant. First, it's sovereignty, and secondly, it's perpetuity. You see, like all offspring of Abraham, Jesus was born into the covenant family. 
God's covenant is perpetual in nature, continuing in the line of generations. That is surely the point of all those genealogies of Jesus listed in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. God's covenant is perpetual, but it is also sovereign. God alone decides who is in it or who isn't in it. None of us have any say over the circumstances of our births. God sovereignly places some people into His church while all others are born outside of it. The promise of Genesis 15 that God would be cut off for His people, that He would bear all responsibility to protect the covenant's integrity, Jesus was binding Himself to this at His circumcision. He was engaging Himself as our mediator to bear the burden of the guilt of the broken covenant. Christ was circumcised because He was binding Himself to the covenant to be cut off for the sins of His people. Right from His birth, Christ was already acting as the head of the church. He was already working the redemption of His people. And that brings us to our second point. Christ's circumcision identified him with his people. Now, I'd like to point out something that you will not have recognized unless you happen to have a Hebrew Bible with you this morning. Our reading from the Psalms has a very interesting feature. Three times at the end of verses 10, 11, and 12, we read Christ say of his enemies, I will destroy them. A more literal reading of the Hebrew would be, them, I will cut off. You guessed it. That word is a cognate of the word which means circumcise. In other words, in this passage, we have the destruction of the wicked expressed in covenantal terms. You are either covered or sheltered by the circumcision of Christ. That is to say, either he was cut off in your place, or you must forever be cut off from the presence of the Lord. You see, this is why we take the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper so seriously. In both sacraments, we are dealing with spiritual realities that are conveyed to us or confirmed to us by the working of the Holy Spirit as the sacraments are administered. The heart of both sacraments, the very reason they exist as such, is the covenant of God. God signifies and seals His covenant to us by means of the sacraments. In our liturgy, for example, for the Lord's Supper, we take note of that warning in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about partaking unworthily. The significance of the warning lies in the fact that as a sacrament, it is a covenantal ceremony. Our liturgy tells us that the person who is unrepentant partakes of the supper at his own peril. What we're saying is that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the Lord's death till He come. To partake of the Supper as an unconverted, unrepentant sinner still living in one's sin is to invoke upon oneself the curse of God. The very curse Christ bore as the mediator for His people. Only those who are in Christ are atoned for. Similarly, when we look at the spiritual significance of circumcision, we see the seriousness of the rite. Circumcision had three significations. Civil, moral, and theological. Now we'll handle the latter two in the next point, but for now, let's look at the civil meaning. 
The civil meaning consisted in that it was the mark that distinguished the holy people from all other nations on earth. Granted, other nations seem to have adopted the practice, which makes somewhat blurry that which was once very clear. Now, don't be fooled by the term civil into thinking that circumcision was merely some badge of national identity. It was not. In it, God was sealing His unbreakable covenant promise. I will be God to thee and to thy seed after thee. This was a promise to preserve the church in the line of generations. God's promise to Abraham was, I will be God to thee and to thy seed after thee. And that means that his promise to Abraham's offspring was, I will be God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Over and over and over again. As I said once before, how can I not see this fulfilled when I can look at four generations of Christians here at Freedom's Reformed Church on any given Sunday? By the sovereign working of the Holy Spirit, circumcision was a sign and seal of the righteousness of faith. What was it working? Or rather, what was the Holy Spirit working in it? He was working the removal of sin from the heart by the shedding of blood, which was done on the basis of the the death of Christ, the shedding of Christ's blood. It was a sacrament of regeneration. It bound the elect recipient unto holiness. In his circumcision, Jesus was identifying with his people. He was taking on his infant shoulders the full burden of their debt to God. He was engaging himself to be their surety, to bear the wrath of God for their sins, and to provide them with perfect obedience. Our catechism teaches us, as we saw just a couple days ago, that our Redeemer had to be fully man, and fully God. He had to be fully man because he represents the men he came to save. And he had to be God because it required the power of his Godhead to sustain his human nature as he bore the wrath of God against our sins. Our catechism also teaches us that it wasn't just on the cross that Jesus bore the wrath of God, but also all the time he lived on earth. At birth, he suffered the shame and disrepute of being mistaken for a child born out of wedlock. Society's view on such children may have changed. God's view has not. It is still a shameful thing. Christ had to bear the shame of being thought of as an illegitimate child. Christ wasn't born in a sanitary room with nurses or midwives to assist Mary. He was born in a dirty animal shed, and his first crib was a feeding trough for sheep. Right from his birth, he lived under the shadow of the curse of God for the sins of his people. And to cement his covenant union with them, he submitted to the rite of circumcision which bound him to covenant fidelity for the sake of his people. By his circumcision, he bound his soul to perform every jot and tittle of the law of God, to obey the law to the nth degree, to fulfill every precept in the most minute way possible to completely satisfy God's righteous standards. 
The only righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal of God must be absolutely perfect and in all respects conformable to the divine law. But all our works, even our best works in this life, are imperfect and defiled with sin. Hence, the only righteousness upon which we can lean for our salvation is the perfect, imputed righteousness of Christ. And we have access to this righteousness because Christ is our covenant head, our representative before God. And it was in His circumcision that He openly took upon Himself this suretyship. You see, the law says... Cursed is everyone who does not confirm the words of this law by observing them. And that means that we are all cursed because not a single one of us confirms the law of God by observing it perfectly. Either Christ bears the curse for us as our substitute, or we're left to bear it on our own eternally. Remember how our catechism defines the church. It says, The Son of God, from the beginning to the end of the world, gathers, defends, and preserves to Himself by His Spirit and Word out of the whole human race a church chosen to eternal life, agreeing in true faith, and that I am and forever shall remain a living member thereof. With that beautifully terse answer, we see the heart of what we've been trying to explain. As Christ took our place, He also put us into His place. That is to say, He bore the wrath of God that we deserved. He fulfilled the law of God in our stead. And He grants to us the, great, the faith, which is our bond of union with Him. And He provides the perfect righteousness, which God counts as ours. All these inestimable blessings are ours because He represents us in the covenant of grace. Every biological descendant of Abraham was circumcised to signify their covenantal union with Abraham. Christ's circumcision signified this as well, but it also sealed God's promise to be the lamb that God would provide, to be the one that would be cut off for the sins of His people, so that they would not be cut off. And that brings us to our third point. Christ's circumcision fulfilled the significance of this rite, this, this sacrament. God's grace in the Redeemer was signified in circumcision, and this consists in three aspects of the covenant promise. First, from Abraham now circumcised would come the Messiah. Secondly, that the Messiah would be cut off for our sins, without which we would be cut off from God's sight. In other words, Christ was cut off so that we would not be. And thirdly, that He would regenerate us. This is what the Bible calls circumcision of the heart. In being cut off, circumcised, by His death on the cross, His blood was shed for the remission of sins. Of course, the sign of baptism more accurately signifies this to us. We no longer need a bloody sacrament to signify the wrath of God against sin. What we need is one that signifies our sins washed away since Christ's atonement satisfied God's wrath. Throughout the Bible, we see repeated assertions that Christ fulfilled the ceremonies of the Old Testament. For instance, we find Paul saying that Christ is our Passover. 
Christ is the Lamb whose blood was shed to shield us from the avenging justice of God. We find repeated allusions to the Old Testament sacrificial system and how Christ, in his life and in his death, fulfilled all that that old system represented. In Genesis 17, we're made to understand that the blood which was shed in circumcision identified you with the shed blood of the animals used in ratifying the covenant. And when we turn to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 19 and 20, we find that the animals, the blood of the animals that were shed in the ratification of the covenant was actually the blood of Christ. In other words, that blood stood in proxy for the blood of Christ until the fullness of time came and Christ's blood was shed. When Christ died, he was cut off, which is what circumcision is. His death was the reality that circumcision typified. And when he was cut off, he was fulfilling his covenant promise made in Genesis 15. Christ, the God-man, bore the curse for the broken covenant. And when the baby Jesus was circumcised, he was engaging himself to be crucified for his people. His circumcision was his promise to die for his people, to bear the negative sanctions of the broken covenant. God passed between the severed animal parts proclaiming thereby that he would bear the curse of being cut off for the sake of his covenant people. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Let's think about that, what that passage is telling us. All men, because they are sinners, are under the curse of God. Christ bore the curse for the elect by suffering in their stead after rendering to God perfect righteousness in their stead. Our Heidelberg Catechism is referring to this concept when it asks, is there anything more in his being crucified than if he had died some other way? And the answer is yes. For thereby I am assured that he took on him the curse that lay on me. For the death of the cross was especially accursed of God. Now Paul clarifies what this means when he cites Deuteronomy 21-23 that tells us that all who are hanged on a tree are accursed of God. This, I believe, explains the language of Jesus in John chapter 3 where he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is a reference to that incident we talked about in the children's sermon from Numbers chapter 21 where God sent highly venomous snakes into the camp of Israel as judgment for their persistent unbelief. In the midst of the judgment, God mercifully provided a rescue. Moses made a bronze serpent and fastened it to a pole which he erected in the middle of their camp. And if anyone was bitten by a snake... If he were to look to that bronze serpent, he would live. Now you might wonder why Jesus would identify his own death being lifted up, as he put it, with the bronze serpent. Why would Jesus say that the bronze serpent was a type of his death? Why was the serpent chosen to represent, or chosen by God to be the emblem of the means of recovery for the Israelites? Well, one reason is that it was a curse of God, Genesis 3.14. And so it was a fitting type 
of Him who on the cross became a curse for us. Now back in our earlier in our second point, we noted the three significations of circumcision, the civil, the moral, and the theological. Well, now we turn to the moral significance. The moral import of circumcision was that it taught the inward mortifying. That, that's what's called in the Bible the circumcision of the heart. This is clearly seen in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 15 and 16, where we read, The Lord did not delighted only in your fathers to love them, and He chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. The early church father, Irenaeus, commenting on this passage, noted that the circumcision of the flesh typified that after the Spirit. For we, says the apostle, have been circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. And the prophet declares, circumcise the hardness of your heart. Bodily circumcision taught the need for the cutting away of sin from the heart. The theological significance of circumcision has many layers. On the one hand, it served as a constant reminder of God's gracious dealings with Abraham and his seed. That is to say, it served as a bond to keep them faithful, obedient, and upright before God. It was also a very vivid object lesson. The part circumcised was the organ of generation. This taught them that the the sinful nature, the guilt of original sin was passed on by the natural propagation of the race. We've said this many times. Cows have baby cows. Sheep have baby sheep. Sinners have baby sinners. All creatures, according to God's Word, reproduce after their own kind. You know, when Augustine and Bede, theologians from the 5th and 8th centuries, read this verse that said that the uncircumcised male child shall be cut off because he has broken my covenant, they understood it to refer to the covenant God had made with Adam, which he broke. In short, they understood the passage to say that all the uncircumcised were cut off because they already stood condemned under the broken covenant with Adam. Furthermore, the theological significance of circumcision lies in the fact that it shadowed faith in Christ for the remission of sins. That's why Paul calls it the seal of the righteousness of faith in Romans chapter 4. The point of all of this being that Christ had no need of a sacrament to seal God's promise to him, nor did he need a sacrament to bind himself to God's covenant. But by submitting himself to the covenant seal, Jesus was identifying with his people. He was presenting himself to God as their surety. He was presenting himself to us as the giver of all the spiritual blessings circumcision was intended to signify. And when Jesus submitted himself to be circumcised, he was making himself the guarantor of all the blessings of God's covenant. Regeneration, cleansing from sin, access to the, pres- to the promises of God, union with God's covenant people through Christ, and faithfulness to God through the enabling work of the Holy Spirit. Earlier we said that God's grace in the mediator was signified in circumcision. We noted that this consisted in the three aspects of the covenant promise. Firstly, that from Abraham, now circumcised, would come the Messiah. Secondly, that the Messiah would be cut off 
for our sins without which we would be cut off. And thirdly, that he would regenerate us, which is what the Bible is telling us when it speaks of the circumcision of the heart. I want to focus on that third aspect of the covenant promise for a minute. The sacrament of circumcision signified and sealed God's promise to regenerate his people. We find this promise multiple times in Scripture in in language such as the following. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Then I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. For they shall return to me with their whole heart. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now the opponents of the Reformed faith will object that this is something that we are imposing on those scriptures. But Romans 2 clearly shows that this is the correct way to understand those covenant promises. For Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but of God. Writing on this passage, the great Bible commentator Matthew Henry says, No forms ordinances, or notions can profit without regenerating grace, which will always lead to seeking an interest in the righteousness of God by faith. For he is no more a Christian now than he was really a Jew of old who is only one outwardly. Neither is that baptism which is outward in the flesh, but he is a real Christian who is inwardly a true believer with an obedient faith. And the true baptism is that of the heart by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Ghost, bringing a spiritual frame of mind and a willing following of truth in all its holy ways. Let us pray that we may be made real Christians, not outwardly, but inwardly, in the heart and spirit, not in the letter, baptized, not with water only, but with the Holy Ghost, and let our praise be not of men, but of God.